Well, it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we're returning to it now, and we're going to finish it out this spring. And it's taken us, I don't know how many sermons, it's been over 100, I think. Uh, Nick told me that uh, uh, he didn't say it with a yawn or a groan or some sort of sigh. Uh, But we're going to finish it up this spring. But where we are, Matthew, let me remind you that Matthew had a clear intent to write his gospel. His intent was simply this, that reading this gospel, I want people to see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King from God, that God has sent in order to reconcile helpless and hopeless people to himself. That's why Matthew wrote the gospel, so that we would be converted, that we would love Christ. And he did it in a very specific way. In the first four chapters, he really wanted us to see the unique nature of Jesus. You know, we, we found out that he was from Abraham, from David, so his lineage was royal. He was conceived by the Spirit, so he had no earthly father. He was worshipped by foreign kings. He was opposed by the, by the contemporary rulers of the day and even the rulers of darkness. So, so, and, and he survived past them all went through the temptation successfully. So he has a unique nature. That's what we see in the first four chapters. In chapters 5, 6, and 7 of this gospel, this king is now teaching. And he gives us the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us the etiquette of the kingdom. How do we live in this new kingdom to which we've been called? And then in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew records a string of 10 miracles showing us the glory of the king. But he also shows us the nature of this kingdom. You know, he heals the sick, he gives sight to the blind, he gives, he gives hearing to the deaf. We see that he gives uh, strength to the lame, and he even raises the dead. So what he's doing is, Jesus is showing us by these miracles, he's pushing back the effects of the curse. Remember the curse, which brought about destruction to humanity, Jesus is rolling back, showing his power, showing us the nature of, this is a kingdom, it's a foretaste, but this is what the kingdom's going to be like. And then in chapters 10, 10, 11, and 12, you see the expansion. Jesus begins to go, well, first he calls his 12 disciples, he reforms a community, and then he sends them out. But then the most ironic event happens, 13, through where we are, the people to whom the message is delivered are both resisting and ultimately rejecting the message. That's what you see, this conflict pick up. All the way until the last three chapters, 21, 22, and our chapter, 23, you have this kind of climax of confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. And we've seen over the past month how the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, one by one, they tried to take a swing at Jesus. They tried to discredit him. They tried to undermine him. They, They tried to get him to lose favor with the people. And then we see Jesus, of course, at the very end of 22, fire a question back that they were unable to answer. But here we are now at the door of 23, and and it's, it's finished now. This is his last discourse in the temple. Last time, he'll even address the Pharisees. And these religious leaders who were supposed to be preparing the people for him, they were opposing him. Here's what we find in 2246, the last verse in the 22nd chapter, he says, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So that's where we are. Finally, it's at a standstill. And then Jesus, in 23, 
brings a devastating word. I mean, a devastating word to the religious leadership. In the first 12 verses, the one we'll look at today, it's speaking about the inauthenticity of their religion, the falseness, the counterfeit religion that they were promoting. And he just assails that. And then next week, from 13 all the way through 39, he just lays just a tremendous blow upon the religious leadership and brings judgment to them. We're entering this phase in Matthew where we're going to start getting a lot of warnings, a lot of warnings that we want to take and and pay real close attention to. I want to remind you, a a warning is always an act of mercy from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Warnings are merciful to us. If you don't care, you don't warn. If you care, you warn. And and, and he's going to give us these warnings, and, and there's going to be mercy in them. And I'll point out to you, that if you were to go ahead and read in Acts chapter 6, you're going to see that a great many priests came to faith ultimately. These same priests that were opposing him, many of them actually heeded the warning. I pray that we would heed the warning. So turn with me if you will. We're going to look at some marks of of really inauthentic religion. And I'm, I'm asking you to read these with yourself in the lens with yourself in view. So we're going to read verses 1 through 12 of Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So, so I want to look at this in two parts. I want to look at this as some aspects. There's three aspects I see in these scriptures about what reveal inauthentic religion. And then we're going to pivot in verse 8, and we're going to look at how Jesus kind of leads us out of inauthentic religion. So look with me back. He's speaking in verse 1. He's speaking to the crowds and disciples. Now you know the scribes and the Pharisees are there because he's going to answer them directly in verse 13. But he's speaking right now to his disciples and those who might follow him. And he's trying to reveal to them, he's going to use the religious leadership. He's going to say, hey, using them as an example, this is what you're not to be doing. This is, these are the aspects of false religion. You see the first one is hypocrisy. And you see this in verse 2 and 3 when he talks about the scribes and the Pharisees. Let me just quickly explain this. A a, a scribe would be like part theologian, part lawyer. He's an instructor. He knows the law of Moses in intimate detail, and he's instructing the people. The Pharisees, the Pharisees were really a religious party. They were like a holiness club. They would be the ones that would follow out to the nth degree all of the laws and the traditions and the rules that these scribes would give. Now these scribes and Pharisees, this group of holiness-seeking people, it says, Jesus says, they sit on Moses' seat. I think that's just an expression 
for saying that they have authority and they have influence over the people. That they had a dominating influence on the life of the people in faith. The idea of sitting in a chair or a seat. You know, you have uh, in university or you have even in um, seminaries, someone will occupy the chair of philosophy or the, the chair of history. In other words, they just give direction and oversight and exercise authority over the department. So that's all they're saying here, that they're seen by the people as having great authority and influence. Now, what Jesus says about them is, and I think there's a note of irony here, or maybe even sarcasm. If you look in three, it says, do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. You, know, you usually don't find that contradiction. I think he's kind of making fun of them. He's showing the hypocrisy of them in the end of verse 3 when he says, for they preach, but they don't practice. I mean, isn't this the epitome of hypocrisy? I mean, maybe as a kid you heard, do as I say, not as I do. You know, there is a contradiction there where we're espousing a position that we don't follow ourselves. Maybe it's you rebuking someone, but you're guilty of the same thing that you rebuke, or you're encouraging or bringing judgment to someone of whom you're guilty of the very same thing. These Pharisees, these scribes, were calling people to live in a way that they themselves, at least privately, were not living. You know, the idea of a hypocrite, actually, the word was used in Greek theater back in the first century. It was an actor. And in the Greek theater, an actor would wear a mask. He would be portraying himself to be a person that he in fact was not. It's like a game of religious charades. That's what these Pharisees were doing. And Jesus is calling them out. That they preach it, but they don't live it. That is a mark of inauthentic religion. Now, clearly Jesus is holding the leadership, the spiritual leadership, accountable for this, as he should. And even in our day, it applies directly. We have plenty of examples of religious hypocrisy among the leadership of churches. It's, it's clear, and it's sad. But it's not just the leadership that he's holding up, but it's all of us. Because he's speaking to the crowds and the disciples. He's saying to all of you. In other words, for a minute, <clears throat> we tend to look at the orthodoxy of our theology, and we feel comfortable that we believe the right thing. I would ask you not to just to look at the orthodoxy of your theology, but the orthodoxy of your praxis, or what you do. In other words, do you find yourself often encouraging people to pray, but you don't pray? Or perhaps you're really admonishing someone to read the Bible because it's instructive, perhaps parents to kids, and yet you don't read the Bible? You know, is there a dichotomy in your life between... <clears throat> what we see at church and what you display in the home. Robert Murray McShane was a great Scottish minister in the 19th century. He didn't live long. He only lived 28, 29 years old, but he wrote some tremendously insightful things. He says, the mark of the hypocrite is that he's a Christian everywhere but home. You know, there's, there's, that, there's that area that we can be who we really are at home. You've often heard it say, well, he's a church angel and a house devil. It's kind of a, a takeoff on John Flavel's words. He was a, a Puritan in the 17th century. He says that the man has the tongue of an angel and the heart of a devil. This is something we need to ask. You know, what is the difference between the two? Do I find myself judging somebody for behavior? 
by a standard that I don't hold myself to? Are you guilty of this? I mean, I, th- I think all of us, all of us should feel a measure of conviction over this truth. I don't think there's anybody that practices exactly as they preach it or understand it. I don't think anybody does. Now, you know, there's the typical criticism of the non-Christian not wanting to come to church because the church is full of hypocrites, which I readily affirm, yeah, it is. And if you come, you'll feel right at home because you're one too. Uh, We're all hypocrites. We all. Everybody has that delta between what they think and what they do. And, And if we don't admit that, then I think we're just deluding ourselves. And I want you to understand the danger of hypocrisy. Now, I realize that there's a continuum here. You know, there's a continuum that, that hopefully over time, by grace and through faith, that, that measure of, of differences within our own person shrinks and evaporates. But it's there. And I want you to understand the danger. When we walk in hypocrisy, <clears throat> we don't just simply display a false gospel. But what we do is we hollow out the core of our own spirituality. I, I mean, when you walk in known Uh, areas of hypocrisy, what happens is we end up losing confidence in the power of the gospel to change us. We lose assurance that we are a child of God. Uh, We have to then begin to deal with massive guilt over, I'm not who I am purporting myself to be. So what do we do about that? As a Christian, how do we overcome these pockets of hypocrisy? Well, I would say first that you're going to pray about it. Ask God. Ask God in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. He says, search me and try me. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me to life everlasting. Ask God to reveal to you those areas of hypocrisy. First, identify it. Figure out where you are walking in hypocritical ways. Ask your spouse. If you have courage, ask your children. They will give it to you just like it is, or at least just as they see it. I I used to do that with the kids, and then I'd brace myself. But I I would. I'd ask them, do you see a difference? Because I'd be giving them a confused gospel otherwise. Ask a care group member. Let them weigh in with you. And, and And then confess those areas. If you're aware right now of an area that you have been kind of duplicitous, two-faced, then confess to God and to those that you may have been hurting. You know, the great thing about confession is that it removes hypocrisy. It's like taking off the mask. This is who I really am. This is where I'm struggling. Would you please pray for me? So confess it. Give verbal expression to those areas. And then preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself that Jesus Christ has come to save hypocrites. He's come to save sinners like us. He's come to save people that are struggling in life. Many of us are doing things we don't want to do. It's not simply I'm intentionally trying to be a hypocrite. It's just it's being revealed to me right now. So so preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself that his grace is sufficient for you and for me. And then ask God in his spirit, to empower us. You know, I think about Psalm 86. I pray this all the time. Lord, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. My heart's often divided. 
want to please Carol, want to please you, want to please God, want to please... And I'm often drawn in many different ways. So ask the Spirit of God to, to fill you that you might have a heart that would fear Him and thus be loyal, completely loyal to Him. So this is the first mark of an inauthentic religion, is hypocrisy. How strong is it in your life? Are you aware of where you are hypocritical? Do you have the courage to ask your spouse or a close friend, say, where do you see pockets of hypocrisy in me? The second thing is in verse 4, another mark of inauthentic religion. So again, you're looking at yourself here. A mark in verse 4 would be a lack of concern for the spiritual good of those around you. A lack of concern for the spiritual good. This is a mark of a faulty religion. Look in 4. He says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Now, you can imagine it's kind of an agrarian society, ancient Near East. You have a donkey, you put a, a load of grain on the donkey. Perhaps it's greater than the donkey can bear, or it's a servant with a, a sack of grain over his shoulder that he's carrying to the market but it's a heavy bag of grain. And you can see the strain and the weight that they are bearing under this weight. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about the tendency of the scribes and the Pharisees to give more than the teaching of Scripture, but the rules and, and interpretations and traditions that you also have to follow. In other words, it wasn't enough to clarify the law of Moses to the people. They would extrapolate from the law all kinds of other requirements that you must do. So one of the craziest ones I think I've shared with you is you know, the, the, the commandment to honor the Sabbath. You know, God gives the commandment as a blessing to us. Honor the Sabbath. What that means is don't work. Relax. Rest in God. Be thankful to God. The pagans never took Sunday off. They're, they're too scared. They have crops to bring in. They've got a work to do. They're surviving. But no, 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 not the followers of God. They take one day off. Why? Because we trust God's going to take care of us and we're going to worship him. So that was the command, honor the Sabbath. It's a good command, isn't it? I mean, we love it. Think about the goodness of God. What they did was, in order to protect the command, so they thought, they're going to make all these laws of what else you cannot do. And they added things like this. This was a law that you can't spit on the Sabbath. Because if you spit, the spittle will hit the ground. And if you kick dirt into the spittle, you're making mud or making bricks Thereby, you're working. Now, this is goofy. It's goofy, but that's what it got down to. In an effort to fence the law and to protect the law, we're going to put all these rules so you don't even come close to breaking the law. And yet you're walking down Sunday, having a nice day. You're saying something, something flies in your mouth. You can't spit. Here's a regulation. And it's burdensome and it's bothersome and it's heavy. And it, it really gives a false gospel. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that they tie up people with all these regulations. But to add insult to injury, look at what it says. They're not even willing to lift a finger. There isn't a lot going on by me lifting a finger. It's the easiest thing to do. They won't even do that. In other words, these, these religious leaders aren't willing to clarify the Scripture and, and encourage people in the faith and instruct them in the right way to go. They're just declaring law and leaving you at it. Hold that in contrast with the teaching of Jesus when he said to the people, 
Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle of heart, and I'll give you rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, the beauty of the gospel that Jesus gets in the yoke with us, he takes our burdens upon himself. The burdens of breaking the law, the burdens of all the things that you've done, that if you were drawn before God right now, the things that you would be terrified, the Christian has the confidence that all those burdens have been placed upon Christ. And he has borne the the punishment and the wrath, just the wrath, the incredible wrath of God over our sins because he's a just God, And yet he justifies us by faith in Christ. That peace, that Jesus, his burden is light. That's why Augustine gave that famous line, you know, how to sum up the law. Love God and do what you want. If you really love God, if you really understand all that he's done for you in Jesus Christ, then your life is going to go in a God-glorifying, God-centered direction. That's so much better than, than you can't spit on the Sabbath and you can't do this on the Sabbath. He gives a burden that's light. This, when I think about this text and this verse in four, <clears throat> inauthentic religion, you know, for the not, if you're not a Christian here, the rules and the regulations do not define Christianity. It isn't that there aren't rules, but the rules and the regulations extrapolated so far from Scripture that are burdensome, that's not part of Christianity. But I think there's a word here for the church, for us as a church. In other words, these Pharisees are being castigated for not caring, not seeking the spiritual good of one another. That's our role with each other. I I mean, what we are called to do, kind of piggybacking off of last Sunday, you and I are called to engage in the seeking of the spiritual good of one another, of preaching the gospel to one another of admonishing those who are becoming lazy and slothful. Not in a mean-spirited, judgmental, condescending way, but in, I care for you. I want you to finish well. I want you to run this race. It's a way of preaching the gospel. Like Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he said, admonish the idle, strengthen the brokenhearted, help the weak, and be patient with all. I mean, we're called to do that for one another. We're called, they gave the dictums of what religion is, and they didn't care about them. We, the church, are to care for one another. So let me ask you this. Who outside your family are you caring for spiritually? In other words, who in your life, outside your spouse, outside your children, who are you actively engaged in promoting spiritual good in them by encouraging them in the faith, by asking them how they're doing in their relationship with God, by asking them how they're doing in their relationship with others, by praying for them. Who are you ministering to? Is there one or two people? And, and if, you, if you are, what are you doing? How are you leading them? Are you praying for them? Are you calling them? Are you intentionally seeking a conversation with them after church or before church that might be beneficial to them? Inauthentic religion doesn't have a big concern for those outside the family. Authentic religion cares. They care. They care about the people. Even though we don't know each other super duper well, we're going to make inroads to seek to be useful in God's, as an instrument in God's hands for the benefit of another. So it's another mark. 
in authentic religion, sin by not seeking the spiritual good. Look at the third one with me, though, 5 to 7. Okay, the third mark of inauthentic religion would be um, self-promotion, kind of self-glorification. Look at what Jesus says about them. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. I will explain that word. And they love the place of honor of feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. What Jesus is holding up about this inauthentic religion is they're really, they're not really holy, but they want to be seen as holy. They're more interested in what you think about their spirituality than what God thinks about their spirituality. They want to do things as if on a platform or on a stage so that everybody will see them. This is what Jesus is driving at. He just gives these examples. Phylacteries, by the way, were just little leather boxes or little leather containers that the pious would put in, on little um, texts of Scripture from the law. They would put them in the box and keep them on their arm. In other words, and put straps around it holding this little leather box. They would put one on their left arm, and they would put one on their forehead. The idea is we want to keep the Word of God close to our heart, and we want to fill our mind with the Word of God. It was kind of a visual aid to remembering the law of God. But what these folks would do, would they make the boxes big and broad and the straps wide. That way they're much more conspicuous, much more easy, easily seen. And, and the same thing with the tassels or the fringes. You know, in numbers, God commanded them to put tassels on the corners of their garments. Why? Well, because they had broken the law so often in the desert wanderings that God wanted them to have a visual reminder to think on the commands of God that you might live in a manner worthy of him. And so Jesus even had them in Mark chapter 9. They were just there for you to be reminded. But what they would do is they'd make them extra long, so that way you'd see them as they walk away. Again, just seeking to draw attention to themselves. Or they'd want the best seat in the, uh, during a feast or a wedding. They'd want the seat up front, maybe elevated, out of the way, maybe by the host. Or in the synagogues, there was a stone bench next to the Torah. They would want to sit there. It was lifted up, out of the way. They're not with all the other people. They're kind of lifted up and different. Or the greetings in the marketplace. You know, oh, your holiness, or rabbi, or father. They would use these terms of great honor. And they would love that. Marketplace is a great place because everybody that's anybody is there. And so they'd hear you, you know, you would get to hear all this kind of verbal honoring of yourself. And Jesus has nothing to do. That's That's a matter of inauthentic religion. Now, all of us here, when you read this verse, you're immediately drawn to a point of thinking, we do love being talked about. We, we do. I, I mean, we do struggle with self-promotion. I mean, what is Facebook and Twitter and Instagram but just self-promotion on steroids? Anybody post a really ugly picture of themselves? I've never seen one. In fact, I don't recognize half the people I've seen. That's that? No, no way. That's not the way I've seen him or her. I, we, 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 are, we, are, we adore ourselves. We do. We, do you not sometimes try to channel conversations back to yourself? Do you not often leave a conversation with little understanding of the other person because you've talked about yourself? Do we not struggle with 
you know, with wanting to say something smart in a conversation I'm in so that they think I'm intelligent before the conversation ends? I mean, do we not feel a sense of angst over someone getting recognition that we don't get? I mean, we do struggle with self-glorification. All of us do. We may as a church. You know, as a church, we can say, well, we as a church, we're reformed in theology and we're serious about the Bible and we're pure in our doctrine and we begin to walk in kind of a a self-glorification even at a corporate level of the church. I mean, if, if this is a struggle for you, this is a mark of inauthentic religion. This is something, again, examine your life over. How often do you draw things back to yourself? How often are you talking about yourself? And I, When you leave a conversation never having asked a question but waiting to be asked, that's a marker. We want to examine our lives and confess that. Ask for forgiveness. Again, involve someone else. Do I do that? Involve your friends into your life. Have them pray for you. Have them pray over you. We want to move with a self-forgetfulness. There is, there, there is a desire to be, you know, C.S. Lewis said it perfectly. And uh, it's one of my favorites. He says, do not think less of yourself. Just think of yourself less. It's a, it's a slight turn of phrase, but it's very good. Just think of yourself. G.K. Chesterton was a British intellectual in the 20th century. And here's what he wrote on how to get over yourself, which is very good. He says, how much happier you would be if you only knew that these people cared nothing about you? (laughs) How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it? If you could really look at the other men and women with common curiosity and pleasure? If you could see them walking as they are in their sunny selfishness and their virile indifference? He said, you could break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always being played, and you would find yourself under a freer sky in a street full of splendid strangers. You'd be so much more positioned to see the glory in other people, how God's wired and created them. If we could just get out of our own little theaters where our plot's being played out. I mean, this is a problem in the church. You see preening in the church. So the marks of inauthentic religion, they're devastating because they're so right on. It's hypocrisy. It's having little spiritual care over those around you. You don't even think about them. You've seen them for 10 years. You've never once prayed for them by name. That's not caring for their spiritual development in life. And then thirdly, self-promotion. Okay, what does Jesus do? Well, look with me back at verse 8. Back in verse 8, he makes this pivot. Okay, we're going to all pivot. He says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You're all brothers. And you call no man your father on earth, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. So let me explain this. There's two things that we have here. One thing first is this idea uh, this idea of pivoting to uh, mutuality, if you will. It's a mutuality he's calling us to. A, a kind of a, a democracy, if you will, among the church. Now, Jesus, I don't want you thinking he is condemning, because right now you're thinking, I called Tom Pastor, or I called the... He's not universally obliterating the use of titles. He's not saying titles are bad. Titles can be fine for purposes of role distinction. You know, Paul himself calls himself a father to Timothy. 
Or uh, Paul in Ephesians says that teachers and instructors are a gift to the church. Or children often call their dads father. It's a term of respect and honor that the scripture calls us to do. So I don't think this is a blanket, a blanket indictment of titles. I think given the context of what we're speaking about, particularly in verses 5, 6, and 7, it's more using titles as a way of elevating and in overvaluing a person, perhaps a pastor or an elder or a leader. It's, it's, it's deferring too much value to the person. You see the mutuality. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that we want to act with discourteousness towards those whom God has appointed as leaders in the church, that the scripture does call us to obey, does call us to honor, does call us to respect those that God has appointed leaders. But they're not of higher value than you. We're all sinners saved by grace. There's a mutuality here, as you see, that we have one teacher. All of us, me, you, we all have one teacher. We have one Father who is in heaven. We have one instructor, that is the Messiah, through the Spirit teaching his people. So I think he's leveling the playing field here. So, so that, there is that, that authentic religion is revealed as there is a mutuality between us, all of, all of us. Now, there's a word here, when I read this, you know, to the pastors, to the elders, to the deacons, to the seminarians, to those in ministry. You know, there is no professionalization of ministry. You know, there isn't, I want to make sure that the clergy-lady divide is, is something that is not found in Scripture. This idea, you know, John Piper wrote this book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. He, he's trying to argue against the idea that the clergy or the pastors or the elders, that somehow they're like equivalent with their masters and their PhDs and their doctors of ministry, that they're somehow equivalent. You know, we're trying to keep pace with secular university. That isn't the case. We're servants. We're not professionals. This isn't a professional job. This is a j- leadership is a place to serve. You need to know that. Not, we need to know that so we don't buy into the rhetoric of, well, titles are appropriate for us. And, and you need to buy into that, not giving us that, not according us that degree of honor or overvalue. There's a democracy here, if you will, that all of us have one father, all of us have one teacher, all of us have one instructor. Now, again, it doesn't obliterate what has happened, you know, where Paul writes to, to esteem those who are placed over you because they're going to give an account for it, by the way. And so thank them for how they're seeking to serve you. But they're not of greater value than the person who's setting up chairs or the person who doesn't have the same gift or the same skills. I hope that's clear because it really is a, it's an important relationship and dynamic that we need to have. So, so that's mark of authentic religion is there is a mutuality. There is an agreement that we are equal, all important, all in need of the same gospel. And then the second one, of course, is this idea of seeking humility. This is the mark of true religion. It's seeking humility. Look in 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, you've heard this was given back in chapter 18 and chapter 20. He's saying it again. Now, do you notice here, and I want this to stick in your head, he's not saying the pursuit of greatness is wrong. 
Pursue it, absolutely. I want to encourage everyone here to be as great as you can. The object's just different from the world. It's to be a servant, and that word for servants, to be a deacon, to do practical, menial things for one another for their betterment. So he's saying pursue greatness in terms of your service to one another. It's really important. This is the mark of true religion, right? Don't we read in James 1.27 when he writes, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, visit orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, it's practical demonstrations. Service to one another is the mark of true religion. Service, though, that is like the service of Christ. Now think about this. Jesus, it's, let's say it's Wednesday. It's the last days in the temple. So he's going to be crucified in two days. Now he says from the mouth of Christ, he says, whoever will be greatest will be the servant of of all. Well, what he's about to do on the cross is the greatest act of service. Uh, uh, to render, to lay down his life uh, to bearing the sins of people, bearing the wrath of God that he might reconcile us. There is no greater person than Jesus Christ because he did the greatest act of service that we could never have done for ourselves or for anybody else. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Listen to what's written about Jesus and Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he, humbled, excuse me, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't you think Paul's mind when he wrote those words was influenced by this very teaching of Jesus? Whoever wants to be greatest has to be the servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus did that for us. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to be a Christian when your faith is solidly placed on Christ. And, and to say that he has done it all. Just as we sang, he's done it all. But in light of that, and out of my gratitude for that, I am going to serve as well. Which is the mark of true religion. That I'm going to serve. And your service isn't just to be out of the kindness of your heart. It's to be instructed by the gospel. In other words, service that is glorifying to God that evidences true religion is instructed by the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is simply this, that our service is to be by nature sacrificial. Now, none of you or perhaps few of you will ever be asked to lay down your life for the faith. There's something sometimes harder. It's the denial of yourself. Do you serve one another? The mark of religion in your life is evidence as you serve others at a denial of yourself. For example, when you pray, that I'm going to pray for people that don't directly affect me. I'm going to deny myself just focusing on my family. I'm going to be praying for other people. Maybe you go through the membership list in this church and you just begin praying for them name by name. Every day I'm going to pray for three people. Don't even know them just yet, but I'm going to pray for them. That is a, it is a form of self-denial. Or perhaps in the way you give. That you're giving in a way that precludes you from doing one thing that you might want to do. God isn't honored necessarily in the denial itself, but it's in the heart of devotion for the other. 
or perhaps in the way you serve, that you will serve another who can't serve you back. You know, it's easy to serve the lovely because they always pay it back in such beautiful dividends. But to do some active ministry, active kindness to somebody that has really no capacity to return the favor, that's an act of self-denial. It displays the gospel. It's instructed by the gospel. Or conversationally with a friend. That you're going to go into a conversation and you want to tell them something great going on in your life. But you know what? You don't. You ask them. You spend all the time focusing on how are you, what's going on, how are you coming along, what's going on in the faith, what are you reading, what are you convicted by, what are you celebrating. That's, that is a denial. It's a denial of you wanting to talk about yourself. But it's engaging them for their betterment and their good. That's an act of service. So you want, we want our service instructed by the gospel, but also inspired by the gospel. You know, you want to be thinking upon Christ, thinking upon all that he has and all that he's done. For me, it fuels a rightly motivated service. My service can be too mixed motivated. I can be serving you because I want you to like me. I can be serving you uh, because I want you to return the favor to me. And if I don't focus on Christ, my motivations can so quickly go to the side. But if I dwell on what Jesus has done, the greatest servant of all, then it inspires a service that's instructed by the gospel. So this is what we have. We have Jesus in the first 12 verses. He kind of lines up three aspects of inauthentic religion. If you have seen them in your life, confess them. Seek a brother or sister to pray for you. And we see two marks of authentic religion. Both the, uh, the mutuality as well as the service of others. So let's take a minute. Now, I, I want to prep you for next week, because next week has some of the harshest language out of the mouth of the Savior towards the religious. It's a very hard-hitting piece, devastating, if you will, from 13 all the way to 39. So, so prepare yourself for that this week. But for the next few minutes, before the elder comes up and closes us in prayer, just ask God for wisdom regarding your own soul. Ask him for ways of how you can begin to move out of inauthenticity to a greater authenticity in your faith. And then he'll close us in just a few moments.